Welcome to The Paradigm Concept, hosted by myself, Dr. David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. The Paradigm Concept will feature leaders and innovators in the healthcare industry, in particular dentistry, to help you find new, efficient, and innovative ways to build a world-class practice and deliver better patient care. At Paradigm Oral Health, we're all about shaping the future of our specialty, with a focus on putting the needs of the patient first. Learn more and subscribe today at ParadigmOralHealth.com. Hi, this is David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. Today, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Daniel Yacoub of Precision Oral Surgery in Greeley, Colorado. Daniel's a partner of mine in Paradigm, and it's been a great pleasure getting to know Daniel from initially recruiting him to join us to working with him as he's developed his practice almost from the ground up over the past less than two years. So Daniel, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Daniel is truly one of the hardest working and inspiring people I know. What I'd like to do is ask you some questions, five points. So what led you to oral surgery and eventually Paradigm? What it's been like building your practice? What's contributed to your success? What your experience has been like with Paradigm? And then finally, what advice would you have for other young surgeons looking to follow in your path? Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, sounds good. So first off, if you wouldn't mind, just to give everyone a sense of your background, can you describe what your childhood was like? I grew up quite a few places, actually. So I was born outside of the country. I was born in Africa, parents from different cultures. But I grew up a few places. I grew up in Haiti and Canada and then Southern California. Fortunate enough to travel the world, see a lot, participate in a lot in terms of volunteerism and healthcare, global health initiatives, too. But it was a very diverse and, I think, unique childhood, I would say, exposed to a lot. I recently got to hear a lecture about being a generalist in a specialized world and how you kind of hear all these stories about Tiger Woods or great athletes that are just highly specialized. They sort of said that that's not the norm, but the exception, and that they've found that people that have eclectic backgrounds, assuming that they've built on them when you follow them over longer periods of time, actually are more successful because you know they don't burn out, they're able to problem solve and when eclectic types of scenarios arise. Do you feel like that was helpful for you? I do. I mean, there's an element of that, but there's also, I think, it gives you perspective. Everybody likes to joke about first world problems, but genuinely speaking, a lot of the things that kind of stress us out in daily life are first world problems. You don't see that growing up in third world countries or when you go there, you visit, it gives you perspective to understand what's important, how to look at the big picture, reorient yourself. You probably know too, it just translates not just to daily life, but business, interacting with family, friends, balancing work and life and all that. So I'm sure we'll chat about it, but when people talk to me a lot, guys who want to join Paradigm, I'm I'm sure you hear it too, is what's the work-life balance and how does that work? And are you always stressed out? Well, no, you just got to Give yourself perspective, give yourself the opportunity to have that outlook where you don't need to stress about smaller things. Just recognize what the bigger picture is. Always have a bigger goal in mind, the bigger picture in mind. You'd be okay. Yeah, I love that. What you're saying about perspective and certainly seeing less fortunate people and a lot of the first world problems that aren't so bad after all. I think it really helps you build a great practice in that you hear a lot of surgeons getting upset about their staff, you know, didn't do something just right, or a dentist sent over an emergency that just wasn't perfectly teed up, or 
sent it on late on a Friday afternoon. And I think that's where you and I definitely see the world the same way. Those are not problems. Yeah, it's not a problem. It also, somebody's sending you a patient. That's not a problem. You should be happy they're sending you a patient and they didn't send it to somebody else because there are options in this world. And if you're one of them and you're the chosen option, you should be grateful, thankful. I think the other thing I remember very distinctly, you and I were talking almost like a year ago or something. I think there was, at the time, there was a surgeon in our group who was not so happy that they were doing a lot of these like difficult third molar impactions. It's like, well, you may have chose the right, chosen the <laughs> wrong career path. You're not going to get the teed up ones every time and you shouldn't. You're a normal surgeon. Step into that role, own that profession, own what we do, which is we deal with the harder ones and GDs are going to take out the easier ones. It is what it is. Yeah. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but you've kind of teed the concept up perfectly. And I think a lot of people would look at your practice or my practice and say like, wow, that's kind of a dream practice. You guys are so busy, enormous support teams, amazing facilities. I think what's got us there is not that glamorous. It's hard work when no one else is looking. But also, I mean, I just want to comment. You say a lot of people would look at it as like the, I think they're world-class practices, no doubt. But if you ask does everybody want the practices you and I would want to run? I genuinely don't think so. And we talk a lot about is paradigm for everyone. It's not, just quite frankly. I mean, it is what it is, but... No, but I think like a lot of surgeons would look at maybe... The infrastructure. The infrastructure, what the practices appear like, our teams, the fact that you might do a thousand implants and things people aspire towards, but they don't really realize what it's doing, those hard things... No, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think there's a lot being done also behind the scenes that no one sees. And that's kind of what Paradigm has done for me is like, you don't see how hard those synchronized swimmers are working, how fast their legs are treading underwater, but they're going, going, going. And I don't have to do that. I have the entire Paradigm infrastructure just running, 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 making sure that the practice is running in every sense of the word. And I can focus on patient care, which is that in and of itself is a dream. It's like a duck in the water. Their feet are moving a thousand miles an hour, but no one else sees it. It's kind of what we're striving for. You had this pretty eclectic, awesome upbringing. Did you know at an early age what you wanted to do or go into surgery? No, I knew I wanted to do healthcare. So my mom is a internist. She's a primary care physician. But I think of all the four of us, like I have three siblings, I'm the only one who went into any aspect of healthcare. I got two lawyers and I got my little sister's an entrepreneur, but I always knew I wanted to go into healthcare. Well, I thought I would always end up going into med school right away. Interestingly enough, when I was in undergrad, I rescinded my applications to med school in my senior year, moving towards the end of my senior year of undergrad. I started actually shadowing people after the fact and realized I didn't like the profession. I didn't really like the culture. I didn't like the people in it, which was an interesting thing. I thought I would have enjoyed it. And then I got turned on to dentistry, oral surgery, and all that kind of stuff. And then so I kind of backtracked and took my DATs, took a year off, and went that route. And ultimately, I ended up doing med school anyhow. You know, obviously went to a pretty spectacular residency program in medical school at University of California, San Francisco. How was your training? How did that shape the way you practice today? Training was incredible. 
med school education. I mean, it's a top five med school in the country. And in terms of the residency, I mean, it was, I think, second to none. I think everybody's a little biased in terms of their own programs, but especially with mine, if I were to look back, I think a couple things I could say about it. One, it gave me a sense of, I think, patient-centered care. My program director at the time, who's now chair of the program, Dr. Brian Bast, he was very patient-focused. Patient always came first with him, especially when it came to pediatrics, which was a big thing for him. Diligence and care. Just because we were in a residency program or at the general hospital, none of that mattered. The standard of care, the level of care you had to provide did not go down just because you were at some government facility or whatever it is. And anybody who's gone through a residency program knows what it's like to go through a county hospital. A lot gets by there. But it definitely shaped me, I think, how I look at patients and the need to actually constantly follow up with them, make sure everything that you've done you're affecting somebody, you're changing somebody in some way. I love that you said something to the effect of the needs of the patient come first. And that's something that you train at Mayo Clinic. I just heard day in, day out written all over the walls and something I just couldn't subscribe to more. And so hopefully something we're perpetuating that paradigm. And today with a lot of consolidation and different investment involved in oral surgery, I think it might be easy for people to lose focus lose as track, to what yeah. they're doing. And, you know, paradigm exists not to be a business, not to somehow generate wealth for somebody, but to help us create better experiences for patients, create better environments for our staff, have more support for surgeons, and hopefully deliver better outcomes and use data to really validate that we are. That that's entirely why paradigm exists. If we weren't putting the needs of the patient first, nothing else would matter. It's interesting to me how people talk about practice these days and I don't think you need to be focused on the dollars. If you focus on the needs of the patient coming first, like you're talking about seeing the emergency, seeing the difficult patients, difficult wisdom teeth, being grateful for every patient that comes through your door, everything else will work out. You'll be placing a thousand implants. You'll be the leader in your community. We talk about that a lot. I know, but the thing is for anybody who would be listening and when you're talking to a younger surgeon and you say, oh, you just got to focus on the patient and everything else will come, it can be a frustrating thing because you don't want to be as patient when you're younger, when you're starting the practice. You look at the guys who are like 10 years ahead of you and you say, why am I not there yet? Why am I not placing the 500 implants, the 1,000 implants, et cetera, et cetera? But I think that's where exactly like you said, if you have the mindset of, it's like customer service mentality, the service industry mentality. You need to do everything and anything you can to get people to walk through your door. You need to give them the best experience possible and recognize that no one owes you anything. No one owes you a referral. No one owes you their patient base. So you just got to be grateful and allow for that to grow your practice from the ground up. And it's, it's hard to hear that when you're so young and wanting to be doing more and more and more. But like you said, it's not the glamorous stuff that builds the practice. It really isn't. Well, I think for you, that decade that it might take most people took about six months. So I think for you, that felt like an eternity. But we'll get into that. I know you had a little experience in a couple of practices before we met. Tell me about your path since residency and how you and I eventually ended up working together. A lot like everybody else, you go in and 
you think, oh, I'm just going to go associate maybe in this practice, that practice for a couple of years and try your hand at a few things and find your forever home. But I ended up, which I think is actually is an unfortunate path and an unfortunate mentality. Anybody asking my opinion, I try to steer them away from that from the get-go. But what I did was I ended up in Chicago right after residency. I joined a great group out there, a larger group. I couldn't stand Chicago winters. So that was a little hard for me. The cold out there is very different than here in Northern Colorado, which is actually pretty mild. It's temperate. But I was out in Chicago and then it wasn't for me. So I left. And unfortunately, right before I left, as I was leaving, rather, I was in negotiations and talks to join practice or buy a practice in California. And then that all fell apart because pandemic hit. So it threw me into this path of itinerant work where I had to keep going into these GD offices. And that was really hard for me. I just don't feel like you do high quality, top tier oral surgery in those situations. You can't ever do that. The environment doesn't afford you the opportunity to be, I don't think, the best you can be. During that time, I did the itinerant thing. And then I actually helped start a multi-specialty practice out in Arizona. But again, it just wasn't for me because it was the same situation. I found myself lacking in excellence. I found myself just not being able to deliver the highest quality care and provide for the patients that... It's not like we were doing subpar care, but I always imagine oral surgery as a true oral surgery practice dedicated, no holds bar. You see pathology, you see implants, you do the bigger cases and nothing holds you back. And I think that's when I started talking to you and Brett. I remember that first night you and I actually started chatting. Yeah, me too. It was very interesting. I mean... I don't know if you remember, I was looking all over the country. I was looking at territories everywhere. I was sending you practices. You came to New Mexico. What did that Uber driver say to you? <laughs> he told me to leave. Yeah. <laughs> he said, you don't want to be here. Yeah, we had the same Uber driver. He had nothing good to say about Albuquerque, New Mexico. I said, how long have you been here? <laughs> yeah, I've been here a while, but I'm trying to leave. He's like, good. <laughs> We had the exact same Uber driver. We were looking everywhere, man. We looked in Arizona. We looked there. We were doing territory research. I had James Carr. Remember, he was pulling numbers and data for me. Yeah. Scraped Jeez. in the web. I forgot about but all that. We did a lot of market research. And then you, you, I always think back and I think, was this his plan all along <laughs> to get me in northern Colorado? And then you just said, hey, go check out this practice. You might like it. And I was like, what is out here? I don't know if you knew this. It was the tail end of COVID when I came out here and everything was still shut down. So when I came out here to Northern Colorado, I was like, yeah, I mean, it could work. I think I like it, but nothing was open. So I had no concept of what it was going to be like to live out here. I was nervous, but obviously it worked out for the best and your vision what you thought Windsor was going to be definitely panned out. I'll say that. To me in Nebraska, I'm not in a tropical paradise. We don't have mountains or ocean or anything. So to me, it seemed like Fort Collins area was pretty spectacular. And a lot of things kind of played into my vision. I know your wife wanted to have a coffee business and it kind of seemed like a great environment for that with the college town. And 
booming economy. So probably a million little things that went into trying to convince you, but it seems like it's worked out. Yeah, very subtle though. It was like an inception. So for some background, we had built a new office in Northern Colorado, a beautiful facility. The doctor that was a part of that practice had developed an illness and suddenly had to retire. We had had a new doctor that was just thinking about joining us there and did join us there and had a more of a inclination for academics and decided that's really kind of what he wanted to do rather than be in a practice where he had thought he was going to have a mentor and turns out there was not a mentor at this point. And enter Daniel, who comes into a situation that I guess probably couldn't be worse. From my mind, I was like, this is going to be the best practice ever. I've identified this rock star. This is an amazing area. No problem. This is going to be a layup. I think it took some convincing for you. I mean, do you even remember those early calls, those text <laughs> messages? I used to send you like paragraph text messages. This, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I'm not doing enough surgery. At one point, I was telling you I needed to fly out to Alabama. Because <laughs> you weren't busy enough. No, yeah. I was like, dude, I can't not cut. So for reference, Daniel's been there, what, less than two years now? So we're at a year and three quarters. So what, a year and nine months. And numerically, probably one of the busiest surgeons in the entire country now, maybe the world. I know you're not where you, you think you can be, but in our organization, your run rate puts you at the top. So pretty meteoric rise. And I think it's that sort of lack of feeling satisfied that's allowed you to do that. I'm super impressed. I've said from the very start, that will be probably the busiest, best practice we have one day. I appreciate that. I just think you're exactly right, though. I think it's a feeling of always wanting more or just setting goals. I don't think that's the right way to say it actually is wanting more. It's setting goals. Wanting to do better. And wanting responsible growth. You remember the first time I came to Lincoln, Nebraska? One thing that stuck with me that you said when we were in the basement in that conference room, I don't know if you remember this, we were on a teleconference, Mike Polson was on the line, everybody was sitting around, James Carr and Katie and Carly, you came down from your surgery and you said, well, are you sold on this yet? <laughs> and then you started going into, you told me, if I walked into my practice and thought that this was the best it could get, I wouldn't want to come in anymore. You always want to be improving. There has to be more, something else. That resonated a lot. With yeah, I tell my team that all the time. If this is as good as it gets, that's great, but just don't let me know that because I won't come to work tomorrow. That's what keeps me coming back. I think that's about right because otherwise, I think that's kind of the downfall. When you talk to a lot of guys in private practice, they say, yeah, I don't know. It's nice being in private practice. You got to make your own decisions as a solo guy, but I would like to have other doctors around me and talk to other doctors because all they're surrounded by is their assistants and office manager. And they get into this complacent kind of pattern where they're satisfied and they're doing their like mil and a half, two mil practice and or whatever it is and whatever they're comfortable with. It's a lifestyle practice and there is no, I guess, vision for growth or more. I think our organizations were definitely not for everyone, self-selected for that kind of mindset, youthful doctors more at the start of their career or earlier half anyway, not restricted to that at all, but it's a feeling of how can I do better? How can I not disappoint? Even if it's not though, even if that's not your initial mentality, I think being around the caliber of surgeons 
that like you see here. I look at some of the guys who've been in practice who joined Paradigm. It's awe-inspiring. You got to say like, these guys, they've done this, this, this. They've accomplished so much. And yet you talk to them and they're still so involved in learning education, wanting to grow, wanting to modify. They're not just like sitting there. Mike Walker, that guy could have just sat back, been okay. <laughs> but he changed. He's improving leaps and bounds. It's unreal. Had a great practice and it's impressive. Could have been perfectly satisfied with that, but just striving for. Yeah. So you look at that and you say, how can I not set more goals for myself? You can't just sit back and say, oh, I'm satisfied with where things are. The thing that has been challenging for me and probably for you, and I think I've learned a little bit from you, when you kind of have that mentality, it, it can kind of be exhausting to the people around you. And you have to realize you certainly can have that expectation for some people, but not for everybody. You're not going to feel the team of staff if you don't have some understanding. For me, it took me a decade to sort of come to that realization. I'm sure I probably burned some people out along the way that I wish I hadn't. It's sort of trying to develop the perfect mix of how you interact with your team. I've been learning that over the past almost two years now too. It's hard. So obviously you're extremely well-trained surgeon, but I think it's your entrepreneurial spirit and just drive to continually improve that really struck me from the onset. How did that influence your decision to join Paradigm? And do you feel that that was a good decision in terms of fueling that spirit? I definitely think so. I think maybe it sounds counter, right? Joining a corporation, you're entrepreneurial, but you joined a corp. But therein lies the difference between Paradigm and everything else those corporations that you would typically say are DSO. It's just not that. From an entrepreneurial perspective, I think, honestly, the world's my oyster. I've been offered the opportunity to grow a tremendous practice out here. We're looking at building out the second. But beyond that, if I were, for example, like on my own, it would probably stop at the second practice, maybe a third, manage a few surgeons. I don't know. I think about where do I want to be? What do I want to do? And you got to think bigger picture. It gives you the opportunity of being a part of paradigm affords you the opportunity to affect real change, not just sit there, collect some cash over the lifetime of your career, open a couple practices and say, this is as good as it gets. That's depressing. I mean, for me, that would be a really depressing sentiment. I get to see a lot of practices now, and it's great to learn from pattern recognition and see new ideas and things. But I would say what you've developed qualitatively, quantitatively, there's very few practices that I see that have been around 20, 30 years that are at, at the point you are. And some of that may be because it is a digitally native practice. Maybe some of those other practices are even hindered by being around that long, but you've built it best in class. Kind of describe how you started, what you came into. You've obviously had to do a lot of heavy lifting, developing a referral base, developing a team, training a team, all of the aspects of the business. And then maybe the kinds of resources you've worked with along the way that hopefully helped you in that path. I think the biggest thing, honestly, is, okay, you come into a practice and the biggest thing is you want to create it in your own image, your vision. And I would say the most incredible thing that Paradigm afforded me, and honestly, you afforded me at that time, is it was a bit of a leap of faith. I mean, you didn't really manage me at all. <laughs> I, was, I was 
pretty much making decisions left and right. And I don't even know if you knew what was no, happening. No, if I knew what you were doing, I wouldn't have been doing my job right. I mean, it's finding great talent. Yeah, but it's really autonomy. The trust in a surgeon to know that they want to build something incredible and allow them to do that. But in terms of how it came about and challenges and all that kind of stuff, I mean, the biggest hurdle was culture. You already said it. It was an older gentleman and then an individual who wanted to go more into academia. That's not the private practice mentality. That's not how you build a practice. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of work. And it's not just work during regular hours. Anybody who's built anything of significance in private practice understands that probably the majority of what will affect your success happens outside of your clinic hours. When you're networking, socializing, going to meet other doctors, all that kind of stuff, and creating a culture around now the employees here to, I don't want to say make them work hard because they've always worked hard, but more efficient in terms of operations, management, the schedule itself. If you take a look at our schedule, I mean, there is no downtime really. And that takes a lot of operational efficiency. And in terms of resources that we've been using to get us to where we are now, it's Lindsay Morton initially. She helped us in terms of like scheduling, how to lay it out, how to guide our the assistants, the front desk, how to schedule. I mean, look at practice ambassadors, how we utilize them for a period of time, but realized it wasn't for us. But I mean, a lot of it was also data. God, there's so much I could go into, but I think the biggest thing was culture. Hopefully, I think was the case, anything that you wanted, you hopefully had. I think the art of working with you was letting you kind of ask for it because it needed to be developed in your vision. We had a common vision. I think it's funny you just said I asked for it. I didn't even feel like I was asking at some point. I was just telling people what to do. I had so much resource available to me. I had the entire HR department. I had James Card. I had the entire IT and informatics department. It was like being a kid in a candy store. I had everything I could possibly want available to me. So every advantage, every leg up to build the practice that I wanted was given to me. And I think that's strategically the way Paradigm needs to operate is finding great talent and just leaning into it. Find the situation that you know is going to be successful and really empowering it with throwing every resource we have behind it. But the other thing I'll say about this, though, is that as a younger surgeon, because I'm out here alone, I'm out here alone in northern Colorado, technically, even though we had the sister practice in Thornton, but I've never felt alone because I always knew I could call on guys like Bernstein, you, Reek, Newbie, whoever, if ever I had clinical questions or I just wanted to run things by them. I never felt alone out here. It's really empowering, honestly. Just so people kind of get an understanding, I mean, I've seen your schedule and the organization of it, everything about it's impressive, the rigor, but I'm also impressed by, I don't think anybody in Paradigm would guess that Daniel Yacoub has the lowest staff turnover. That just doesn't make sense to me. It's like an enigma. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. So talk about your schedule and then talk about how have you created a culture where you have a team that works as hard as they do and is happy. I'm very fortunate, I guess, but let's talk about that. That's a very important part. You think you mentioned earlier how you burnt people out in your career. 
And I think I'm the same way. And I think the best way I can describe it is just to say that it has to be top down. If you're going to expect people to work as hard as you want them to, or ideally want them to, they have to see that you're putting in the effort too, that you prioritize patient care the way you want them to prioritize patient care, and that you care about them as much as they should care about you and your practice, this practice. It's not even my practice. If I'm ever talking to staff, I always say it's our practice, our patient. Give them ownership over it. They should have ownership over it because majority of the time, the patients don't even want to see me. They should want to see my staff instead. They probably like my staff more than me. And I hope that's the case. I really hope that's the case because my staff is in terms of numbers, availability, hours, manpower. They are more than I am. So as long as they're at the forefront of it, I'm happy. I could be in the background for all I care, taking teeth out, putting implants in, whatever it is. But I think in terms of the culture itself, we've been very fortunate. I've definitely butt heads with people in the beginning trying to change things and turn it into something that I wanted, the machine that I wanted. And luckily, they've gotten on board, but not without a lot of back and forth. It's like a family. You fight with your family. And I think that's healthy. You fight with them a little bit, but there's healthy friction. You care about them. And we've had that, definitely. And they've got to see it. I think that's with anything. You have to be able to show that. You can't just say it. Honestly, if any of them need anything, they know they can always come to me, ask me, regardless of what it is. And that's why on any given day, I can plug a patient in at 6 a.m. and no one's going to say a word. They're all going to say, yeah, we'll be there. No problem. I think when people, I mean, they've been kind of with you since the start and can tell they're part of building something special. And I think people will work a lot harder and, and try a lot harder when they're part of something. You can see the result. You can see the transformation, the patient reviews and I can guarantee you that any one of my surgical assistants could step into any oral surgeon's office in our territory and be their lead surgical assistant, hands down. And that's something that I'm very proud of. So while maybe it puts some gray hairs on you to work for me or with me, I can guarantee you one thing. If you leave our practice, you are going to be the best there is in that position, hands down. Everybody's going to want you. And that's the reputation I want out there. If you're coming from precision oral surgery, everybody freaking knows that you are the best trained at what you do. Yeah, Dr. Yacoub is really hard to work with or for, but goddamn, his staff is <laughs> bar none. Our organization, UI, have tried to differentiate ourselves through data, technology, and education. What's your experience been like with those assets and how have you used them to build your practice and sort of design a patient experience? In terms of designing a patient experience, I think I can speak to it more so in terms of just practice growth. When you have real-time data, like on our Paragon dashboard, being able to see number of appointments, net production, number of implants, all these metrics on a daily basis, who's referring to you, how many they've referred of extractions, implants, this, this, and that, based on whatever time period you want, you can guide your marketing campaigns. You can strategically set up your lunches and education, sphere, et cetera. But I think it's real-time data that affects real-time changes and strategy in your practice. It's a powerful thing. I guarantee you other practices are not on that level. And they're not on that level because they just don't have it available to them. 
And even if they did have it available to them, I don't even know if they have the resources available to them to affect any sort of meaningful change. I can look at what's happening really with any practice and then adjust my marketing strategy based on that. I can send my community liaison, set up this dinner, set up that lunch, set up private spear education event where we go and do a lunch. There's so much available to you. So the data is one thing. It drives the decision-making, but none of that really will matter unless you have the resources to implement and affect some change. So while I'm performing patient care and surgeries, you have to have other resources, other people helping to really build the practice simultaneously. I always talk to guys who ask me about what it's been like in paradigm. I say, well, you won't need an admin day. You don't need that day where you're running payroll, you're looking at this, you're looking at that data. You don't need that. Yeah, you're functioning more as a CEO. You're setting strategy and others are executing your vision. Exactly right. And I think that's more fun. That's a more exciting way to run your practice and practice oral surgery. I mean, well, you can certainly accomplish a lot more when you can spend your time doing surgery, but then beyond that, interacting with referrals, interacting with patients, strategizing about your practice growth, how staff should be trained, how people should move through your office. Amazon obviously wouldn't have been built by one person. You're the perfect example of that and how you've managed to build this. When you were building NOFs, you didn't have all of that, right? You didn't have Paragon. How long would you say it took you to build to the point where you thought you had to bring in a partner? I was sort of thinking about bringing in partners from the onset. It was just sort of my inclination. Maybe it was too early, but it seemed to work out well. I think the quality of your practice is the quality of my practice in Nebraska. I've been doing it for 13 years. You've been doing it for 13 months or 18 months or 20 months or whatever. So I think you're sort of a decade ahead of me. That's a very exciting thought, but I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I think we're all sort of giving each other the ability to just develop faster, iterate faster, change, implement technology, develop technology, you know, whether it's our own practice management software or our data ecosystem or all these things that, yeah, it would have been impossible for me to have 13 years ago, but we're all sort of getting on a more even playing field much faster and growing together. So I sort of think it took you about 18 months to sort of get on the field that maybe we would have been at, at a mature practice that we you know, probably would have taken decades to develop otherwise. Yeah, but that's pretty typical for most paradigm de novos anyhow. The de novos have remarkably similar patterns to their growth. So that's been really gratifying. And thinking about where you're at now, you probably feel like you're a decade away, always a decade away from reaching your potential. But now that you've built Greeley into a world-class practice, I know you're planning to open a second location on the edge of Fort Collins. What's the planning process been like? What kind of things do you think about as you expand into a second location? I think the biggest point of stress for me right now is I'm basically trying to grow this practice as fast and as large as I can so that when we do open the next site and we bring in the next surgeon, I want to make sure that they have a schedule ready to run. I want to be able to offer them something really tremendous. That is like spectacular. And I think hopefully every surgeon in our organization would say that. That is so opposite of what I think most people think about. 
the fact that you're saying I'm super focused on making a new surgeon busy, you're not even thinking about yourself. And ironically, because of that approach, you're going to do better than anybody. Oh, I can guarantee you. Yeah. But the number of people that think that way, I think you can count on one hand. Yeah. So I think it goes back to perspective. People miss the forest for the trees. And you have to understand that if you're going to open this new location, you're not bringing in some mediocre, low-achieving individual. These are people who've gone through med school, dental school, residency, some of the most arduous rotations ever. They want to come in. They want to do real surgery. They want to cut. They want to have a meaningful career. They want to feel like they're accomplishing something. And yes, you can obviously expect and help coach them, train them on practice growth. And that's going to be a significant part of, I think, my job once I bring that other surgeon in is help them understand the business side of everything. But also, I need to make sure that they have a schedule to feel professionally fulfilled and get excited about the rest of it. Because if you're not feeling as though you're accomplishing, if you can't finish your day and say, that was a good day at work, I can't call you at the end of the day and start strategizing about marketing, business ideas, expansion, growth. You're going to say, I really don't care, man. I'm not busy enough right now. I'm stressed. That can't be the mentality. You have to set the stage. You have to set it up correctly. And so right now, my biggest point of stress is really maintaining. It's not maintaining, but it makes me nervous to be booking patients out so far. And that's probably the biggest problem I'm having right now is We've grown to the point where, unfortunately, like I'm booking patients out three weeks or whatever. We're running three consult columns, two follow-up columns, two surgical columns. But it's got to be this way. And it's got to be this way for the next year until I open Windsor. Because then I can offload some of those patients and help that individual develop their practice. That's the critical piece, man. That's the critical part. But most people look at their schedule and if they see it booked out a long ways, they're like happy. If I look at my schedule and see it booked out more than a week, I'm just like, no, what's going wrong? I'm having to put people off. That cannot be a pleasant patient experience to be in pain and have to wait two weeks or three weeks or six weeks. That's it. And I do not want that reputation of precision oral surgery. They used to get patients in so fast. What happened? No, I don't want that. So part of the solution, thankfully, being a part of Paradigm, I can afford to come up with a new operational schedule. And I'm going to try to basically onboard tomorrow. I have another surgical assistant coming in. Hopefully we can hire her. I'm going to bring somebody else in. And then that way, my staff isn't going to get so burnt out that everybody starts quitting, but I'm going to be able to rotate them out and start accommodating even more and more and more. I don't mind if I'm the one working tirelessly, but I know where the endpoint is. Once Windsor opens, I'm going to be able to offload a bit and focus more on what I'm excited for is honestly offload the schedule a bit, focus more on territory growth. Then I can start doing more of the big picture stuff again. Well, to me, and I think you see it the same way, it's about building a brand, not building my name. If the Mayo brothers had thought about building their, I mean, the Mayo Clinic would have died with the Mayo Brothers, but no one is referring to these places because of one particular surgeon. It's a brand that has you know great credibility and something bigger than one individual. That is so, so much harder to build than just a nice reputation for just yourself. I agree completely. Once you have the brand and your identity is the brand, 
that's all people should really care about. Your brand is basically the authority in implants, the authority for everything oral surgery, and it's top tier. The patient experience is second to none. And that's what the referrals, potential referrals will look at and hopefully value. That's what I'm most proud of in Nebraska. And what we've built is that I think we have 10 surgeons that have all joined us and stayed and had great careers. And I don't think anybody really cares who they see. I mean, some people might have some mild preferences, but they're referring because they know that their patient's going to get the same standard of care, regardless of who they see. That is hard to build. Last couple of questions. As you look to hire a second and maybe even third surgeon here soon, what kind of qualities are you looking for? Teachability, good work ethic, and diligence. I think you and I have spoken about it before in the past. I don't need another me. Our practice would collapse if you put somebody like myself in it alongside me. But I need somebody who cares about patients, puts them first, who cares about doing quality surgery, and who's willing to learn. The thing that'll kill a practice the fastest is ego. You demonstrate ego to a referral, a patient, colleagues. No one will send you a patient. No one wants to teach you. No one wants to interact with you. No one wants to collaborate with you. I think that's the biggest thing is teachability. If you're going to join Paradigm, if you want to be a part of this group, why wouldn't you want to learn? There are guys out here, there are guys in our platform who have just such experience and knowledge. You got to be willing to learn and willing to improve. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing. I don't know what you looked for when you were bringing people on, but I think in the current platform where Paradigm is right now, if you're coming in and don't think you have anything to learn, probably it's not the right space. Well, just as I talked about, and you're talking about building a practice where other surgeons are busy and are satisfied and have a great experience and patients have great experience. That's how I think about Paradigm. I think I could be probably having the same conversation with almost any surgeon in our network, or you could be talking to someone other than me and you'd probably be having just about the same conversation. And that's been, I think, very, very carefully curated to develop that culture and mindset and way of doing things, not cutting corners, paying attention to every detail, working harder when people aren't looking and things that won't immediately pay off, but will build a moat around something exceptional that does something for society that results in better patient care, better patient experiences, not a business that's here to make money or something that's here today, gone tomorrow, something that we can all be proud of like decades from now. I mean, it certainly is a business. And like you said, you put the patients first, you do all that, you make sure that you're practicing ethically and all that good stuff. The money will come, you'll make the money. Well, last question, because I know we'll probably do another one of these at some point a year from now, and I'll be marveling at what you're now working on. You've got a lot of things going on now, but how do you think about the future and how do you see the future of oral surgery and dentistry? I think it's a very exciting time as consolidation. It's moving really quickly. Corporatization is moving very quickly. Consolidation is where it was for medicine back in the 80s coming into dentistry. I think it's an exciting time, especially for younger surgeons, because a lot of the younger surgeons are coming out with debt from med school, dental school, et cetera. And to have something like Paradigm give them the opportunity to build a practice that is made kind of in their image and they have complete autonomy to do whatever they want to do, so long as it's responsible, is a fantastic thing. 
I think that it's really just an exciting time. There's a lot of opportunity out there. The future of oral surgery, I think, is always bright, but I think made even brighter by our organizations like ours. And it's not like there are other organizations like ours. I just think that we're kind of leading the path. Otherwise, what else is there? There's generic DSOs that are being rounded up for private equity. There are two sides to it. A lot of people can say that it's a dark future for oral surgeons. I think a lot of the older guys out there might say that. They're saying you can't private practice oral surgery is going by the wayside. Everything's going corporate. But I think paradigm is contrary to that. And I think it's a breath of fresh air. And I think it's a signal to the younger surgeons out there who are looking for real opportunity that there's a lot of good still in our profession and a lot of good yet to come. I think so much is going to change and people can say change is bad. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a great thing in this circumstance. Oh yeah. The faster you can change, the more improvement you can have. And I've come to accept that a long time ago. Things are never going to stay the same if you want to be best in class. And I could go on and on about why I think the future could not be brighter. I think everything that's going on with technology and data, it's we're in our infancy. But I really thank you for taking the time today. Every time I talk, I get more excited. <laughs> I want to go try something new or change something, the way of doing something. Absolutely. Thanks for all you've done for the organization and for me personally. No, thank you for having me. This is great. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Daniel. Thank you. You've been listening to The Paradigm Concept, brought to you by Paradigm Oral Health an organization led and owned by surgeons passionate about shaping the future of our specialty and ensuring the needs of the patient come first. Learn more and subscribe to the show at ParadigmHealth.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Paradigm Concept.